Well, welcome one and all to the very first episode of Stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds. This is a new podcast launched here at Clarion University of Pennsylvania. My name is Dr. Mark Sanko. I'm an assistant professor of history in the Department of Social Science, and I'm joined by my colleague uh, each episode, Dr. Jeffrey Diamond, who also teaches history in our department. So hi, Jeffrey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Before we start talking too much about Wait a minute. Isn't this the Beaver County History Podcast? What is history? Local history seems to be a straightforward idea. Yeah, that's a kind of an interesting science story. Thank you for having me on the podcast. This is one that I definitely enjoy that dives into local history. What is history? It's the history of a small, well-defined area. History is his story. And it's also her story. It is an account of past events and sequence of time. The people, the places, and the events in all of our lives. You're listening to the Beaver County History Podcast. It was very interesting and really brought history to life. Hey, welcome back to this episode of Beaver County History Podcast. I'm Kevin Fargus, executive producer of the Social Voice Project. Today we're coming to you live on tape, as they say, from... Clarion, Pennsylvania. Now, Clarion's not in Beaver County, if you figured that out. So why are we in Clarion up here? Well, we're in Clarion to talk to some new podcasters who are doing some local history podcasting up here in the Great Wilds. Why is this the Great Wilds, you guys? The Pennsylvania Wilds. You know, the collection of counties that makes up sort of north-central Pennsylvania. We took on this name, the stories from the Pennsylvania Wild, because we really wanted to tell the history of this very rural region. And and we kind of took that moniker from the nonprofit organization, the PA Wilds, who've done a great job marketing this region. And so we wanted to sort of buy into that marketing. We wanted to sort of promote their brand and promote our region and uh, tell the stories of rural places that do matter to, to Americans and to Pennsylvania. Exactly. I would just add, actually, if you think about it, we think of Pennsylvania Wilds as a rural place and forests, but this is also an important area of industry, important area of resource extraction for good and bad. And so we have a long history of oil, coal, and other industries that have been gone to the wayside for the most part. But they use the word wilds to refer to nature, but it actually involves much more than that. So you just heard Jeffrey Diamond, who's uh, your co-host yes. of the podcast, and Mark Senko. You've got one of those deep radio voices there, Mark. Well, thank you. I've been told that quite a lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we are here with the host of the Stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds podcast. What you guys are doing up here is sort of what we've been doing for a long time down in, in Beaver County and trying to flush out history, local history in particular, with this amazing platform of podcasting. Right. So I want to get into your thoughts on podcasting just a little bit and why you went this route with this technology. I use this to tap into the younger folks. So almost invariably, every single local history museum, historical society that I, I talk with, they say the same thing. Oh, our volunteers are so small in number. They're all elderly and they're, they're dropping off. And we can't get young people to get involved with this. Young people, aren't, they're not interested in local history, yada, yada. So this whole podcasting thing is that kind of technology that sort of fits in the groove there, you know, with, with younger folks. And you guys are associated with Calarian University. So you guys have a ready-made audience, I think, 
to podcasting. We do, but we're seeking to go beyond just the university. We do want to actually reach the region and actually show not just for our students, but for the people around here that history matters. That's part of what it is. It is to reach a younger audience, but to show that history is still part of their lives. We often get this idea academia is sort of separate and people are not part of, or we're not part of something like the basic decisions or basic ideas of what's happening in a society, but we are, and we want to show that we matter and that what our students do matter, that they have a future in this kind of profession too. I like that phrasing, that history matters. I, I use that a lot myself. I think it really conveys what we want people to know about history. So you launched this podcast in March of this year. Yes. Bam, here comes the coronavirus. <laughs> you guys go one episode off and then boom. Yeah, talk about derailing all of our plans. You know, we had originally launched this idea as as, you know, public history being a very popular thing right now in the field. And we thought this would be a great way to get our students both involved into public history and local history like you're talking about. And yeah, so our, our plan was to create these episodes where students can share their, um, you know, the research projects and whatnot. And then of course, like you say, coronavirus hits. And so we, we quickly... Thankfully, we thought about it and shift gears, and we're able to highlight a lot of university experts on pandemics and the history of it, the the biology of it, or, or I guess in this case, the virology of it. Yes. And, you know, did I think what everybody else did, which was make the best of the technology that we had. You know, we, we had kind of this nice setup that you have here today, because our, our colleague Matt Albright in the communications department was able to work with us and, and produce some good sounding yes. uh, episode one and then uh and then we had to fall back on the zoom but it's been good i think the reception's been great so far from that well so now you have your what you call the the coronavirus special edition right you have three episodes three now. episodes your yes. first one was the science behind the virus and then you talked about the history of pandemics and then the, in, in particular the 1918 spanish flu i listened to these these are fascinating just fascinating well thank you are Thanks. you getting that feedback from folks that do other people find this as fascinating as I do? I think so. We've heard from several, more than several people. Not everyone, most people, and you know this from doing podcasting, don't really say much. They may put something in comments you may or may not see, but generally most people, just like the internet, just, just a few people who are really noisy and no one else. But from the feedback we heard, even privately, people found it really informative. And although we, we mention it, we don't fully engage it for many reasons, but they also talk about the comparisons to now, um, particularly the Spanish 1918 flu and how the similarities of what's happening in Pennsylvania now to 1918 is striking and unfortunate at times too. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think local history projects, museums, societies, and so forth should do is bring that stuff in the past up to the present and make those connections for yeah. people. I don't think that happens well enough, if it happens at all in a lot of cases. So you guys are seizing the moment here. You have this, you know, we all we're enduring this uh, this event in our lives, and you guys are, you know, hey, let's connect that stuff that we know of in the past to today, so we can better make sense. Is that is that how I read it? Yeah, I mean, make relevance of relevance. what happened in the past, right? Yeah. And, and in fact, when we started all of this, that was kind of the point. We and maybe you heard that on the first episode was uh, we were going to be talking about the centennial of women's voting rights and the, the the amendment passing in 1920. So our focus has always been about bringing that past alive. And the the comparisons to the Spanish flu are just too many to, to mention, really. And so, yeah, it's been it's been good, I think, in that regard. 
there are some things you can't bring forward. Some things that are, you know, maybe there's too much of a difference between what happened in the past and today, but you can certainly make comparisons to that. And it's educative, it's relatable. And I think that's what's really important is being relatable. Exactly. We're humans and humans react similarly throughout history, actually. And so we're trying to show what has happened in the past and Ideally, we learn from it. I'm not sure we always learn from history if, or if we learn the right lessons. But ideally, we can see, oh, these people made this mistake before. Maybe we should rethink this. Unfortunately, that's not always been the case or still isn't the case. But we can see enough comparisons to know. I think one of the big issues we were bringing up with the flu and with other pandemics is as humans, we can actually influence the outcome. We can't control everything, but we can influence the outcome. And it's whether we make that decision as a society and with leadership and with us willing to do it as well to actually make that decision. And we haven't fully, unfortunately, yet. So these are some of the issues that come out. I'd like to go back and talk about your first episode a little bit because sure. I think that's a really fascinating banking crisis and independent women of the PAY Wilds. Uh, yeah. I'm curious about that connection there. But let's talk about you guys for a bit. Sure. Now, both of you are historians, right? You are from the academy. PhD Correct. historians. Yeah. Yes. Mark, what is your specialty? What are your interests, your professional and personal interests around history? Yeah, so I got my PhD from uh, West Virginia in 2018. And, and my specialty was really North American immigration, labor, and, and law. Um, and so I was looking at a comparison from the United States and Canada. Um, I, you know, I'm originally from Michigan. I grew up on the border between the two countries. And so that's always fascinated me. But I paired that with what we call public history, and, and I'm sure you and your listeners are familiar with that term. And that has always been a real big passion of mine, is how do we take these historical moments or these historical communities and really make it something that the public uh, can get involved in? And so that's, I think that's evolved to become my main sort of specialty here. And it's digital history, it's um, helping communities tell their own stories, these types of things that I think are really, really important. So I got my start as something else. I still enjoy doing immigration history and, and comparison history um, between the United States and Canada. And in fact, I'm teaching a course on modern Canadian history in the, in the spring, which I'm excited for. But uh, so that, that's kind of my background where I'm from. Jeffrey, how about you? I have a little bit of a different background. My research is on the British Empire, and I work on the British Empire both in Britain and in Asia and the Middle East. Wow. So I, we have to teach very broadly here. So I teach pretty much most of the Europe and world history classes, which are required not just for our majors, but for social studies ed. But my PhD is from London, the University of London, and it's, it deals with the British Empire. So in a sense, I mean, both of our training somewhat is very traditional and that we're from the academy. We write articles that are published in academic journals that are for, and we review books and other things that are for academics that very few people in the audience would probably ever engage. But what we find, this is a way to show why, again, as I said before, history matters, why it involves their lives. Because it's so easy to be stuck in that narrow field. We are sort of evaluated that way and sort of expected to be part of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we feel like as historians, we need to find a way to gauge out. So actually, I come from the more, I do more of the European world perspective. You probably will see that more when we, when we do perspectives. Even for the 1918 flu, I made a little bit of comments about the global as well as the national to bring that. And Mark brings in more of the local perspective. So we try to balance each other out by doing that. The way we balance each other out by doing different classes as well for our students. 
So you mentioned being here at Clarion, you have to do a bit of a broader sweep of history with lots of survey classes and things like that. Um, What is your sense? I don't want to put you on the spot here. What is your (laughs) sense of the of the of the uh, the student interest, young person's interest, young people interest in history? (laughs) (laughs) Are you pulling your hair out or or what? What's your reaction? Well, this is a broad statement. Anything we're going to say here right now is going to be a broad statement. Oh, and by the way, if you if you want to say, if you want something off the record, just, just oh, no, say it. Cause sure, no problem. Uh, this can totally be for the record. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think most students enjoy history. I don't think most students understand history. I think they they have, and I, I've I sort of retooled my survey courses this semester to get at what I call the Disneyification of history. Right, that this idea of popular history that you might see on the Disney Channel or you know through the movies like Pocahontas or whatever that sort of invaded our historical memory. And in fact, you know, so I teach modern American history, so that starts in the 1870s. And we, the first myth I try to bust is this idea of cowboys and Indians in the West and and how that's not at all what the historical record says. And I, I think they're interested in that. They're interested in learning about these things. But I also think that they're there's a lot of walls to break down as far as that's concerned. That's a good point. I find two issues. I think students really are interested in history. They face two obstacles. One is more and more in our society, and this, people argue, started with the great sort of recession about 10 years ago, is people say, what's the purpose of history? Why would I do it? And one reason we're doing this is because of that, is because history teaches you skills for jobs no matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do after um, and so they have that restriction from family, actually. Why would you do it? The second thing is K through 12 has become so much an education about rote memory that they have history where they're forced to memorize names and not really engage issues. And so, so often we get two kinds of students, some who really love history and then they love it. But we also have a lot of students who come to our classes, particularly our surveys, who just take the class and they expect it to be like high school and they're expecting this really boring, dry lecture. And we're trying to engage them in a totally different way about how history is, what makes history exciting is about debates. I always tell them, my, I myself would be really bored if I was teaching that way. And that would be yeah. a really bad sign for me to be teach to them, too. And I'm trying to model for them, even for those who want to become teachers, but just in general, why this is important and how they can engage it. So they do have an interest. It's, it's also, it's, there's a lot of things. That some of it is societal for movies, right, and sort of pop culture that glorifies it. There's this current trend against liberal arts, in a sense, which is really important for what makes American education so much different than the rest of the world. And I've lived around the world, so I can tell you, it really does teach students to be more part of a society, particularly our economy, which is social service. You need to have that stuff. And the last thing is they're just the indoctrination, that I almost would call it indoctrination, really, that comes from K through 12 education. And how we break through those things, that's not how we really think of history or teach history. It's a really great point, Jeffrey. You know, I had uh, several students just this past couple of weeks that have said, wow, you know, we haven't covered things like uh, reconstruction. You know, my AP teacher said that's not important. Um, and, and so you really wonder what the quality is in some cases of these, these high school educations that they're getting. And if they're skipping over things like, you know, reconstruction, World War I, um, you're sort of missing major points here. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think people have the sense that it's rushed. Where are the nuances? You know, give me the highlights. Give me the headlines. Um, 
And so when, when you bring historical topics and subjects into some level of detail with people, with youngsters, I often find there's a bit of a frustration because they're not used to hearing or experiencing history on very detailed, nuanced uh, levels. And so the frustration barrier pops up pretty quick in, in my experience. Maybe you have that, that same thing too there. Uh, the episode before this was on Native Americans in Beaver County. And I really wanted to do something different. So I had um, two folklorists on there, a guy who has a website, you know, it's on his own website, and a, and a fellow who runs a museum, talking each from their different perspectives. So we talked about Bigfoot, believe it or not. Lovely. Uh, Why not? <laughs> Mononji, that, that creature in the Monongahela River. There were some tales that were told. We talked about the Paleolithic stuff, the, um, the amateur archaeology that went on. So we covered a, a lot of ground there. And, uh, you know, I put some scoring in there, and I really tried to make it interesting because I didn't want to just do that same old fifth-grade history books yada, yada, right? So this is sort of leading me into a, a question that I have here for you. How important is it for history professors, high school history teachers, elementary history teachers, and those public historians, and I mean those folks who are volunteering in, in the historical societies, writing books. You know, Mark Grego has you know, just independent website, right? He loves the topic. So, you know, how is how important is it for everyone to sort of really pay attention to how history is conveyed? And what are some of the challenges to doing that? Well, it's critically important. So our K-12 secondary ed social studies kids that, that get degrees from Clarion University have to basically get a minor in history. And, and in theory, we're supposed to be trying to teach them not just the actual historical things that have happened, but how to learn history so that they can continue to be lifelong learners. And then hopefully as you know, they progress in their teaching career and pull in new information from new sources and you know, really evolve as teachers themselves. There's also, you know, a catchphrase, shared authority within public history, that we have to work with our community partners to tell history. We can't do it all. Like, university professors can't do the whole thing. High school teachers we shouldn't, can't actually. tell the whole story. And you're right, and we shouldn't, Jeffrey. There's right. people who have stories that need to be told. And so, you know, how do we create people that want to go out and actually tell those stories and tell them well, and then help other people tell their stories and tell them well? I would agree. I think the nuances are important. The problem, our society in general, from talking heads on TV onward, want the sound bites for one minute and they want to have the reaction. And right now we're in a kind of reaction of everyone has to have some kind of really strong reaction. But when you actually get into the details, they, they do like it and you can do it. Starting going back to your point earlier, for example, I do a lot on industrialization. And you can often just teach industrialization. Yeah, there were some bad things. But, you know, it led us to where we are now. In fact, we're sitting here right now with technology because of industrialization. And that's all great. But what I want them to see is what were the contestations of the time and they can relate to it now. So I have this whole project where I do a thing on industrialization. I'm just finishing it in one of my classes. And they see what it's like to be a worker, what it's like to be an owner of a factory, what it's like to be an elite, and the different issues they have. And the reality, what they see is these questions are still going on now. They may change the people's names and the terms, but these matter to them because these same debates are now. We're living, this area, and I don't know about Beaver County as much, but this area is very post-industrial. One of the biggest economic issues is they've not fully, and our local leaders either have not come to terms with how to address the fact they cannot rely on the same economy that they relied on before. 
These are the exact questions that were going on in the 19th century. The questions about energy, about new sources of energy at the time, which was the new, more efficient things were coal. Now we say that's not the efficient thing, but at that time it was. Those who embraced those things are the ones that moved ahead as societies. And that's sort of what's going on now too. And we as our own society, if we keep holding back, we're going to let other countries pass us. And they see that and they start seeing, well, these countries went ahead in the 19th century. Why did Europe become so powerful when they weren't? Because they were embracing new technologies where the older powers in Asia were not. And that's exactly what's happening again. And, and there is a lesson to be learned there. And they relate to it personally. I've had a lot of students say, you know, I worked in factories or my family does because this area. And they say, you know, I could see these kind of issues because, you know, we still have some of these issues. Um, and so they do like the nuances and they're like, wow, I didn't realize industrialization was so complex. That's just one example. And that I'm only doing it on the world perspective, more in Europe and global, but it really applies to the U.S. as much anyway. And Mark can cover the U.S. part in the classes, but they see that and they see those connections. So for us, although we don't really fully coordinate in that way, we do cover topics that they say, oh yeah, I'm doing that in Dr. Sanko's class. I'm doing that in Dr. Diamond's class on a different scale. And they like that. And they go, oh yeah, we're covering World War I from a different perspective. We can see that. And they do see the reason why those nuances are important. And I think as a society, we have to start doing that. We can't rely on these short-term solutions, short-term sound bites for us to ever get through things, whether it's COVID now, whether it's other kinds of issues later that are really influencing or holding us back, actually. So after your students or people in the, in the communities, for example, have these realizations, they see these dots connected, they, the eureka moments, oh, I get that now, then what? <laughs> then what? What do you want to happen? Well, I mean, ultimately, <laughs> go volunteer at a historical society, right? <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, put, put those skills to use. Um, you know, Jeffrey makes the point that everyone wants to be screaming at the loudest right now. We're in the society that's that's highly contested. We're by probably all intents and purposes, a new culture war I'm sure is brewing or is here already or has been. And so people want a thing to say, hey, we're on podcasts, there's social media, there are places to do that. And so I don't think there's a lack of people talking. I think it's a matter of putting your voice and your thoughts to good work. So yeah, I mean, I, we joke about it, but Work with your, your history societies. Work with people who are doing the things to amplify those voices. Yeah, I would add, I, I agree with that. And I would add, one thing we teach, I mean, a lot of our students will never become historians professionally or, am, or even amateur historians, and that's fine. But we're teaching them the skills to think through these issues. And if you go back to the history of our country, George Washington was very keen on education. He said, if we're going to have a real democracy, we need to have an educated public. We need to make educated decisions, not decisions just based on our emotions. Emotional decisions never work out well. They may work out temporarily for a little bit at a time. They'd end up really poorly in the end. And we can look through many societies, even in recent history where that's happened. And we need to be more nuanced. And we need to be willing to actually have time to listen to that. And we're trying to teach that, especially we're in a society now our students also tend to come from a generation where everything's very instantaneous because of the internet. We're trying to get them to engage it more. And we do it through ways that we still engage them and make it not just a lecture, but they can realize they can still have fun. They can still learn from it and still engage it. So it doesn't matter if they become historians or they volunteer, which would be great, but they need to be able to engage these materials. They need to be informed citizens. That's what makes a democracy work. And that's why what we have to offer, regardless of what your life skills. And then when also tell them when you go get a job, 
people want someone who can actually think and actually articulate those thoughts, not just someone who just can't say anything or just says yes. Um, for those people who have people surrounded by yes, that never works out in the long term either because they're never getting critiques. And so they need that kind of thing. So we're trying to kind of do, I guess, many purposes, I would say, right? One is to show history is important. One is to get into society and make sure show how society itself and and why there should be informed citizens. Yeah. And, and I actually, you know, have a student right now who's a theater major in my public history class. And, you know, it sort of answers this question of, well, he's now interested in history. He's connecting these dots. So what does he do? And he kind of asked me that question. And I said, well, you know, look at the play Hamilton, right? I mean, there are, there are certainly ways that you can still pursue the things that you love, but you keep history in mind. Exactly. And, and um, not that not that Hamilton is necessarily accurate to history, but it, it's, it's creating conversations around these things um, that people want. I mean, people, people want to consume things that are historically based. Uh, you know, if you would have told me 10 years ago, the perhaps biggest play in Broadway is going to be historically based. I, I might've laughed at you, but, exactly. uh, but people eat it up. I mean, it's the most expensive ticket on Broadway. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood has had great success with historical oh, for sure. works. I mean, yeah. I mean, factuality aside, <laughs> uh, you know. But history is really about our identity, as I always tell my students. It's, it's gendered because it comes from a different time. It says his story, but it's our story. And I think that's why people care, regardless of their political persuasion, regardless of other things. How they want to manipulate it at times to fit their story is, can be problematic. And what we're trying to teach is it's more nuanced. It doesn't fit one political narrative or one political party or another. It's actually much more complex. And when you start seeing that, you learn history is complex. One of the issues of our own country is we've not come to terms with our own historical past. And that's playing out in a lot of political debates going on right now, and even people in the streets. And until, I always say, until we come to terms with this and we accept it and we start realizing um, that we are not post-historical, we're subject like every other nation, like every other people to historical forces. It's part of our story and we need to accept that and be able to engage that instead of just gloss over with Hollywood, whether it's Cowboys and Indians, you can mention from earlier 50s stuff to now, or anything else, or Disney, to the way political and historical debates play out in our public sphere. These are, these are issues that our society needs to engage better and we're trying to provide that venue in a way to do that. Well, what we're talking about really is critical history, yes. right? Critical history. Looking at what's there, asking the questions, looking at the gaps, putting these things together, right? So what I've heard a lot here uh, is story. Well, what is what is the art? I used to say, teaching is an art and a science. Okay, well, what's the art side of it, right? And I think what the artistic side of it is, it boils down to like, can you connect with other human beings through this, one of the most fundamental human endeavors is storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I've really actually dove into that this semester. I, um, I've retooled a lot of, you know, just sort of normal lectures where I, I thought I was doing a pretty decent job of storytelling. And then I, I kind of looked back and realized I probably wasn't. It probably wasn't as engaging as I wanted to be. And so I've, I've scrapped it. And I've gone to, you know, if we're going to be talking about, we'll keep saying cowboys and Indians, let's tell a story about that. Let, let's spend 15 minutes or so at the start of class setting the scene for what we're going to talk about and, and really trying to engage the students with that story and make them feel like they're there, make them understand sort of, sort of what it would be like to be there. 
And then if you hit them with 20 minutes of, well, this is what actually happened, it, it matters more, I think. They can make those connections a lot more. So you're absolutely right. Telling those stories is so much more engaging. And people at, at a human level just just respond better to those stories. And, and I'll actually tee Jeffrey up here on something for him. Sure. He does this gaming in all of his classes that is just fantastic where the students end up being the story themselves right so there you go jeffrey yeah. off, off you go with it wow. well i'll say uh two things i'll talk about the gaming in a second we do try to tell stories we do tr we have to make it engaging and actually teaching is is very much an art as much as the science and there's people who are i guess we just you're either good at it, I hate to say it, or some people just don't have the social skills to be able to interact with other human beings in a way that make them effective. And there's this whole debate in higher education as well as K through 12 about standards and assessment and how you do it. And I'm not sure that really proves anything about a teacher. You can tell right away when you, I could tell right away when I see a teacher if that he or she is effective to the class. And it is about how you engage. So the story is about how you engage students and everyone is different. So what works for me will not work for Mark. What works for Mark may not work for me either because it's it's the kind of person you are and it's it's very personal. So storytelling is like that. That's why people who like Good storytellers always have their own little take, their own little voice, I would say. And so there are different ways you can do that. One thing I think is important is, is to be a critical storyteller, though, meaning being self-reflective, being and try to teach them that, that they could be consciously or unconsciously censoring themselves. It's very easy, and you doing this with oral history happens all the time. You can leave out all kinds of problems. Oh, and everything turned out great right? And then you were born, <laughs> right? I mean, that's for a family, but it could be all kinds of things. And you need to be a little bit more open to that than just tell a story of cowboys and Indians by Hollywood or a story of Aladdin, which we talk about in my classes since I do Middle East stuff for Disney or Pocahontas. We actually had a history club event a few years ago that actually went into Pocahontas and what the problems with that kind of story is um, and what it glosses over. So storytelling is important, but it's also important to be able to bring them in and then show them the complexity, I would say. And since you want to talk about the gaming, I do do this thing that's called reacting to the past, where the students take on historical characters, historical roles. One of the big themes I care about is empathy. I want them to be able to fill the shoes of a historical actor. Even sometimes people we find repulsive, but we need to understand what makes that person tick. And so they do this through this gaming where they actually have to take on the roles and speak as if they're that person. They give speeches, they debate that way. It doesn't mean it's exactly, we do, we debate really conscientious or really, really important themes. There's a whole kinds of reactings. So I do one on industrialization. I was sort of referring to it in 1819 in Manchester, England, when there was this whole debate about traditional weaving, as well as modern industrial technology, which we now see as the looms, which you can find in museums we laugh at now, but that was the new technology at the time. I do other ones. I'm doing one for my Russia class on the Russian Revolution. And this is a way to talk about really engaging, really topical classes for the time without just giving a dry lecture or explaining this. They have to take on the roles of different political actors or different economic or other forces in a society. And they have to be able to articulate it. I'll give you an example from the industrialization class. I was, there's this one mill owner, she's a widow. Her name is Hannah. I always get students named Hannah. I want to be Hannah. And then they become Hannah. And every inevitably, they're like, Hannah is horrible. Why did I want to be her? Because she's this horrible mill owner who doesn't want to do anything for her workers and only really cares about herself. And then they understand this sort of debates that are going on then that are going on now between business and between workers. Where is this balance between uh, successful business and with your workers? Um, and where's exploitation 
stop so we can actually have a successful business that works and actually doesn't rely on a society that just benefits the few, right? Those are debates going on then, those are debates going on now. And so they can relate to that. It's kind of funny when they do it that way because they can actually, it's not personal. So they can say things they would never actually say otherwise. One thing I find when you talk about controversial things is they don't want to say it, they think it was too political. Some topics get really problematic to the point they would never talk about in class. They even write to me, I don't know if I can say this. I'm like, this is what happened historically. We need to actually address it. We cannot cover up horrible things because what's the point of that? So as part of the storytelling is, I think, making sure they're critical and make, and in my case, I guess I make them part of the story is what you were saying. And that's, and I think they really do like that. And no matter what, regardless, especially people who aren't history majors, they especially love it. Like, wow, history is interesting. Um, history majors love it too. I have a lot of teachers, like, I'm going to do this in K through 12. I'm like, you should. Now, I don't know if they can, because K through 12 is so regimented that it's impossible to get your own stuff in too much. I wish they could though, because I think they would get more people interested in history in K through 12, and they wouldn't find it as just another thing they have to take because it's required and that they have to pass by memorizing who was president in 1900, as if that alone is a fact that's that important as opposed to what did he do, right? And then what were the debates in 1900 at the time? So now that you have a podcast, how is this going to come into your podcast so that it's not, and if you want to make it this way, I guess you could, but uh, uh, so that your podcast doesn't become a audio lecture, right? And, and I think it's easy to do that. Just sit down, read your notes, you're done. Hey, podcast on topic XYZ. Where do you see this creativity, the art side of teaching, coming into the podcasting? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's trying to involve people in conversations that maybe don't necessarily happen in a typical lecture, even if you're doing a gaming thing. I mean, we're talking with authors and, and storytellers and people who have a unique story to tell. And, you know, you brought it up with the the coronavirus specials, you know, we want to be topical. We want to be on uh, nimble on our feet, be able to change topics mid-season if we have to, and make it relatable to the point where it's not a lecture, it's a conversation. A good podcast is a conversation. A bad podcast is, you know, either you're drunk talking about the Steelers or it's it's simply lecturing to people. No, Mark, it's Steelers. Steelers. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, my, my Michigan voice can't quite get around that. The Steelers, okay. <laughs> let, let me try this one. Yin's guys, right? Uh, <laughs> Very good. Um, Very so, good. So, yeah, I think, you know, making a conversation, making it something that's, you know, you don't need to listen to Jeffrey and I for the whole podcast. There needs to be other voices that come out because there are a lot of people who have stories and, and those stories are what we should be highlighting and not necessarily what Jeffrey and I want to talk about. Right. There's a difference between the interview and the conversation. There is a, an amazing difference oh, there totally between is. those two. And I think a lot of what happens in oral history work is the interview, as opposed to the more free-form, the more flowing, the more open-ended dialogic that happens there. I think that's actually true. I mean, our lectures are probably are more engaging like that because we don't just lecture. A lot of my class is a conversation with my students, and at first they're not used to that because they're so used to having a teacher tell them what to know. And I keep telling them, listen, I can tell you all I can talk the whole time. That's not going to teach you anything you're not going to learn much actually and you're not and we all we know this from many studies you don't remember any of it after the semester's over and you're going to fall asleep and you're going to totally fall asleep and i'm going to fall asleep so we do this podcast the similar sort of way we try to even when we talk to each other we engage it most of our podcasts we don't talk too much 
our latest one in 1918, we talked the most. And we were actually a little bit upset about that. We didn't really want to do that too much because we felt like we're kind of becoming lecturers a little bit. We were very aware of that, but we also were aware of the situation of what we had with our interview for that podcast, and we needed to provide context. To us, it's always making sure the audience understands the issues that come up with the conversation. And so, for example, when we start the baking crisis, um, we had an interview with Jess, and then we had this whole context about what this banking crisis meant, the complexities of it, the fact that this female banker stood up to the government but took a risk with not really her money, but her customers' money, actually, in the end. Um, but she still stood up to government. And so we try to show like different sides, which is what we want to do in classes, too. And so we try to we try to have a conversation amongst each other. If you listen to the interviews, we're basically conversing with each other. And the interview, we try to make it less formal as much as possible. We're trying not to be that stiff. So tell me, you were born in <laughs> 1947. Yes. You were, you know, that's just not interesting. And we're not a court. We're not courts. We're not lawyers. And that's not what we want to do. We want to be able to have people see those stories in a way that they can engage. Um, and I think that's kind of the trick of art. And maybe that works better for me than other people. I don't know. But that's the way I teach, too. It's a way to kind of get these students in, I think, as a way to... And once they're involved in a conversation, they can't be tuning out or thinking about other stuff, which is easy to do in a lecture. And I, I admit, I, after 45 minutes, it's proven I'm totally out of it too. No matter how good the person is, I just can't listen. I mean, there's a limit of time. And so it's trying to find that engagement. So we did that. The most, again, we talked was really our last 1918 Spanish flu podcast, but that was to provide context for the remaining interview, which it needed because it would have been... Uh, lost without it. And they needed that. And I th and also it was a way to try to show the connections to now too. So sometimes we will talk more, but our goal is not to be the dominant people. Otherwise it's us telling other people how they should think. And we don't want that. To me, that's not teaching again, that's just indoctrination. So you guys are historians, you're educators, you're not audio engineers, you're not broadcasters, no. but you are podcasters now, of course. How do you guys deal with the tech side of it? You know, part of all of this comes from a push by the universities and by the state system, the universities, PASHI, to work more collaboratively within your campuses and across campuses. And so uh, we reached out to Matt Albright in our communications department and asked if he'd be interested in doing this as like a collaborative project between history and communications. And so he very graciously agreed to do so. You know, I think the work has been uh, maybe... <laughs> He would probably say easier right now because it's all on Zoom and it's just one audio file instead of, you know, like the nice big setups and stuff. But he's been our technical side of yes. this for sure. And and he's been great in putting us together, making us sound good, making us, you know, nice and short. We, we, we have this terrible thing that we do when we listen to a podcast of asking him for about a million edits. We do. <laughs> down to the second and uh he's always been great with that so you know again it's collaboration and whether that means you're collaborating with community partners outside the institution or with people who know more than you i mean just just because jeffrey and i have phds does not mean we know everything in the world in fact no. it means we know a very limited amount of things but we know that that thing well yes so being able to reach out to people like like matt has been really helpful for us to sound pretty nice at least when we come off yeah matt has been really helpful i mean 
I don't want to speak for Mark, but I'm an audiophile. So when we were buying equipment, I'm like, oh, I know this brand. And Matt was actually like, yeah, that's the good brand. But when it really comes down to it, it's Matt who's been taking our files. Even for Zoom, where there's only really one audiophile, we're one track. So it's really hard to edit out. So we've had some issues where computers making dinging noises that we tried to stop. And you cannot, you kind of hear it. And he can only do so much. And we do bother him. And it's probably more me than you, but I'm really down by the second. I'm like, at at this point two of a second, I'm like, you need to pause. Cause that's what I would be doing if I was editing it. So we do bother him a lot, but he has been very good about all those edits, setting us up from the initially from the part. Um, he's sat in our first one. He actually sat in some Zooms, but then eventually we just started doing Zooms ourselves cause he doesn't need to sit down and all of that. But Matt's been really helpful. And I think it is part of that collaboration. In fact, when we first started talking about this, it was because I think I was talking to, uh, the head of communications about another idea. And then Mark's like, we need to think about this. So this actually started with my interest in music and audio files. And like, can we do something? Can I do something with communications? And that had nothing to do with my job. That's just that I like music and they have a studio. And I like, I want to be able to do stuff. And I still have never done that, by the way. <laughs> so I need to bother them so I could have, I can open up Western PA to new kinds of music besides certain kinds that are played on the radio here. Nonetheless, we've, we've done this. And we, so we got involved with Calm in a weird way, and then we realized this is a great way to do it. And actually, they have, we don't need to be buying the same technology they already own from the university. We don't need to be trying to figure out stuff that they can do. We should probably do a little bit more than we've done, to be honest. I mean, just to be self-critical. Um, but Matt's been very helpful for that kind of stuff. So they have the technology that cost a fortune, which you probably know from having some of those audiophile technologies, and that we just couldn't get the money for. We, they have the ability to do it in ways that we would take a while to do. So we go right up live very quickly. So it's been helpful. And the other thing, too, is it's great for our students, both in common history, to yeah. see that history can be something that works collaboratively with other programs and with other degrees. And so, and vice versa, that you could be a comm major with a love of history and do something with it. And so it's really been, yeah, a very fruitful partnership, for sure. And there's also this thing about, with audio work, theater of the mind, right? I mean, you can go back to the early days of radio you know, the golden age of, of radio drama, radio theater. But now with technology, right? Now with podcasting, I think we're tuning our ears again into the power of audio and the, and the power of the, the imagination of the mind. And I think that just lends itself, you know, to come back full circle with, you know, the teaching of history and telling the stories, you know, to, to leverage the power of podcasting to those ends, I think is a very significant thing. Yeah, part of storytelling is you have to know your audience. It's yeah, easy for yeah. me, I always, that's, I'm always trying to think through, not just teaching, but for this, and I know you do this too, Mark, is how are they understanding it? And try to think through as much as you can of how they can engage it. So I may assume something doesn't mean they know it. I don't know about Mark, but I do listen to, I mean, it's called the golden age of radio in the US, but I listen to a lot of drama and other things from radio in, in the UK. And they have this, this whole still tradition of people who listen to the radio, really good radio drama. And I've been listening to that for a long time. I learned more teaching from watching people, and I probably learned radio more from that than reading a book to teach me what I should do. And I can see, wow, that's really a good idea. I can see how they're basically leveraging the fact you can't show something imagely, so they're describing it. Um, the same thing from news and stuff. And so it's important that you think about your audience and what they may know or what they may not know. And the, my assumption always is they know less and rather explain it. And if it's too much explanation, then we can cut it. So we have done that too. 
Yeah, it actually, it, it calls me back to a, uh, I think it was an 11th grade or 12th grade class I had that was about arts and media. And we had to put on a radio show. Cool. And so, yeah, learning all these things about, like, how do we make it sound like we're walking up the steps? And, and, uh, and all of these audio cues that you give to your audience. And so that's always stuck with me. Yeah, Jeffrey's <laughs> Sorry. working on it. Uh, and, and so that's always stuck with me. And, and I've always been big into sort of radio and, and how we connect with people. And I think you're right with podcasts. And in fact, it was last summer I got into Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast, which, you know, is really sort of this audio lecture. It's just him talking about the things that, that he uncovers. And but the voice and the way and the narration and the the stops and starts and the way he draws you in and so really paying attention to that i mean i was captivated by it and it's it's just audio and so you're right i mean i think we may be living through this sort of golden age of radio again maybe hopefully or at least voice <laughs> who do you really want to get on the podcast what topics do you really want to cut? Like, what's burning, right? What do you really want to get after? Oh, man. Um, I don't know if we have, like, a who we really want on. We don't have a who yet. We're pretty flexible on that. But I, I would really love to get talking about the, the industries of this region. Yes. You know, Jeffrey alluded to this. We, we talk about the PA Wilds as this, this very rural space where people come and vacation, and it's, it's woody and... and mountainous and lakes and all of that and beautiful and very beautiful but there are so many people who have lived here their whole lives and can remember when it was a, a timbering place or when their coal mines were operating or when when the glass plant here in clarion was was full blow gosh I, you know that was gonna be what we were going to talk about with the pandemic it's made it much more difficult but i think those are the stories that i think really really matter to this place and really transform our understanding of what North Central Pennsylvania is all about. Yeah, I'd agree. We're thinking a lot about industry and environment, I'd put with it, because they go together. Because there is a cost that's being borne through later generations. We're paying now for previous generations' industry through all kinds of issues. Um, so we want to do both in terms of, this is again showing the more varied thing. You could say, oh yeah, it was so great they had timber industry. But if you look at images of this area around 1900, so much of it was so devastated because of timber that there was this massive erosion. There was a massive environmental problems. In fact, we have no topsoil in our area because it all eroded away. We just have clay that, that stayed on. Um, and so there's a lot of issues that are involved that really affect people today. And these are the same debates going on today when we deal with resource extraction. So they have relevance today. So we find industry really important. We also want to do a thing on um, prohibition. And I was going to, I didn't have time, I was going to bring something because we want to go to St. Mary's, which is a little bit northwest of us um, in Stroh Brewery, because it survived, at least somehow survived through prohibition. So it's seen as a legacy brewery. Um, that's just one. But we want to talk about this issue of how these changing ideas, how can it affect a society? Because we're going through this renaissance right now. We're sitting here drinking a beer from a local brew pub in Clarion, right? And it's a pretty good beer. And we need to kind of relate, why, did, why was there like a hundred year gap between some really good beer and then no beer. And then we let basically what this is, a, what prohibition mostly allowed was major corporations, which is so much the story of the US to take over this industry. And now we finally have these local small businesses who really love beer. And to me, I'll just say that I appreciate more good beer than worrying about the company. So I'd rather have someone who cares more about the quality of the product than just 
how much they can make per can of beer. And so I'm sure anyone who really values something, whether it's beer, wine, food, or anything thinks that way. And so we want to kind of relate to those kind of changes that are taking place. That's what we're doing in the 19th Amendment to show these kind of stories of this area, to see this area was actually important. And people don't realize this, the oil revolution really started here, which had worldwide implications. This may be such a rural area that has a small population, but it has had enormous impact. It doesn't seem like our wish list is that great, but I think right now, being realistic about coronavirus, I think anything right is a wish list, uh, getting out and talking to people. I wish list people. is bigger than you think. It's just, it's not on one person. Yeah. We try not to look at history through just one person because history involves so many people. And when you talk about things like industry and environment, that is really the history of this region for the past 150 years. So it's actually a really big topic. There's no way we're doing it in one podcast or probably even a season, to be honest. We're going to look at different industries and the impact of those industries in different ways. And so there are important people. I mean, there are people like the Rockefellers who are here. There's, there's people you can look at. But one thing we try to move is away from this history of just one person is important. To me, the person who lives on the street and has to really struggle as as important as that rich person because they both have a story to tell. And we have too much of the story of like these top-down ideas of history that do not tell the stories of local people. And let's face it, most local people here are not those kind of people. And if they really want their stories told, that means we have to value them. That, that goes back to something I mentioned, you know, earlier of, you know, young people learn history by the big headlines, yes. right? The, the top order items and stuff. And all the, the, the little people, quote unquote, little people history... Right? We don't learn about that, right? Social history, just people's experiences, right? Which you capture through oral history, you know, from our neighbors in, the, in our communities. So important. Exactly. So important. I mean, if you did a survey of the people within one mile here, you'd find war veterans and probably people who were participated in or were at major world events. But who knows that? Who knows that history? Yeah, I'll give you a great example. My neighbor right across the street is 92. Ooh. She's from the Netherlands, lived through World War II told us stories about skating down, you know, the canals in, in uh, Holland and eating pea soup after the war because they didn't have anything else. I mean, that would be a fantastic interview. And I, yeah, sure. Maybe I should go do that right now. But, uh, <laughs> I but, but yeah, you're sure. right. I mean, these, these stories <laughs> yeah. are everywhere. And I, and I think when we relate that to our students, especially because, uh, you know, in the Pashi system, most of our students come from working class families. And, yes. Um, a lot of them here at Clarion are first time university students and their family. And so... They relate more to that type of history. It, it makes sense to them. And their own histories matter, yes, right? absolutely. I mean, that's something we, we have to always be That's the of. whole point of what, of what we're doing, what we do not just in class but on the podcast, is not just to highlight those big names because of that. So, yes. So your first episode, you took up the 1930s banking crisis, and you talked about independent women in the PA wilds, as you guys say up here. Wild women, dare I say. Um, <laughs> yeah, we were trying to be careful with that. <laughs> but that's why in the PA wilds is a phrase that has nothing to do with her. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to be your next episode? So I think our next episode is going to be continuing that theme of women's history. Uh, we have a student, Autumn Martino, who's going to come on and talk about, she's been working on a grant project where she's actually been able to go out and do um, research across the state and write about the 19th Amendment yes. in 1920. And so she's been writing about how rural women have been part of that suffrage movement in Clarion and Armstrong counties. And so we're going to explore sort of the women's suffrage movement in rural Pennsylvania and let her come on and share her research that she's done so diligently for over a year and kind of go from there. We're not we're not 100% sure how the rest of the season is going to evolve. Yeah, we've had to change again because of COVID and because we're still at a campus that's remote. 
it makes it more difficult. But autumn is something that's supposed to come on the spring, but I'll just add, this is part of what we're trying to do because we actually worked with her to apply for the grant. Um, she was successful at getting it. We were sort of supervisors, but it was for this project. And so we're trying to involve our students as much as possible. And one way is to not just, not just have our voices or interview people, but make our students part of the research. Um, we're hoping to actually bring some students to talk about the research process on as well. That's probably the other thing we're going to do. As far as other episodes, it's going to be more difficult because of what's going on right now. So we've put stuff on hold. Because what we'd really like to do is be able to go into the community. And that's been much more difficult. We actually have equipment like you have that we're sitting in front of, and we can't use it or at least we really have very little ability to use it because of social distancing requirements. Um, and so it's, it makes it a little more difficult, but we are going to bring Autumn on and it will be a great episode. And hopefully some other students will just talk about the research process to get other people involved and also encourage other students to come on. We want it to not, again, just be us. It's for our students too. Do you have plans to reach out with um, the museums and heritage societies scattered all through these Northern counties and sort of uh, develop partnerships with them or programs? Well, maybe about the same time our first episode launched, we reached out to the PA Wilds nonprofit organization that does the marketing for this region. And they've been great. They actually paid for our new logo to be made, which was awesome. So we are hoping to work with them to make those connections. I mean, they've already suggested there's a timbering museum here in PA Wilds. So um, we're working with them to sort of make these connections and try and, you know, have conversations with these nonprofits, with these museums, with these local history societies, not only for our own podcast and not only to sort of publicize them, but also as places for our students to get internships. Exactly. Um, it's twofold. It gives them experience, but it also gets back to the point you made, getting people, young people involved in history. Exactly. I would say we actually have brought people on from local historical societies. Jess was actually, even though she works for the library, she basically has become sort of the de facto local historian for Titusville. And we also, we have internships we've arranged. We have one with the Brookville Historical Society, or as I guess you should say it's the Jefferson County Historical Society. Yes. And we are very keen to get those internships. But one thing, because our students often need to work, we're trying to make sure they're paid. Uh, Mark's been very good about that, especially. And it, it's really important because we're, we're not doing this. Most of our students don't really have the luxury to be able to do an internship and a job. And it may not pay great, although minimum wage is so low in Pennsylvania, it's paying at least that. But, um, but it, it's, it's an opportunity for them to expand their historical horizons, see a future job perhaps, but also at least help pay bills a little bit too. So we have started developing those resources and those relationships, and we're hoping to continue with that with other historical societies in the area, depending on where students are. So a lot of students are around here, so it makes sense. But right now, because of COVID, they're not. So it's a little more difficult, but we're hoping to work with students who are in like St. Mary's, for instance, we have students, maybe they can work in the local historical society, students around Erie, wherever they're from, Pittsburgh. Uh, Mark's actually developed a relationship more with the Heinz History Center, right, with your class this semester too. So, and we're trying to bring that into the podcast. So we are trying to relate to, the Heinz obviously is large. I mean, everyone knows that who does local history for the Western PA area, but we want to not just have that, but have the local little places. Yeah, I think that's very important. A major thrust of what I've been trying to do in Beaver County is to encourage, you know, every almost every town has a little museum or society exactly. tucked away somewhere at the bottom of the library basement or whatever, to encourage those organizations to become the community centers, not only to collect, you know, old coal buckets and things like that, the artifacts, but also to become engagers in their communities right here, right now. I always say history happens right now. It is unfolding right now before us. 
Well, it is. So for historical societies to be able to sort of recognize that and to actually engage that, I think is very important for all of us. Because if they do their little part there in that community and these folks over here do their part, at the end of the day, we will have such a richer tapestry, right, of local history all around us. Where can people find the podcast? Podcast is available anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, Spotify, <laughs> Google, Apple Podcasts, all of those. Anchor FM. Anchor, Anchor FM is what we use to host it, and they push it live to uh, all those places. So I know I use Spotify, but I know other people uh, use other different things. So we are we are widely available yes. under stories from the PA Wilds. Or Pennsylvania Wilds. In fact, I use Google Home, and all I have to say is, Okay, Google, play the latest uh, podcast stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds, and it will just play the latest podcast. Look at us historians being technologically savvy. So the podcast is Stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds or Stories from the PA Wilds. Do you know when your next episode might be out? Well, I think we hope to record in October. Yes. And so we're looking at late October, early November release for the next episode here. Mark Sanko, Jeffrey Diamond, host of Stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here today on the Beaver County History Podcast. Thanks so much for having us, guys. Yes, thank you. You guys are going to be famous after this podcast, I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, boy. Or infamous, maybe. For more Beaver County history, visit the Beaver County History Podcast a production of the Social Voice Project.